Thanks for downloading or purchasing this sermon from Christchurch Forward. To find out more, visit forwardchurch.co.uk or join us on Sundays. The first reading is on page 1088. It's taken from John chapter 19, beginning to read at verse 16. Finally, Pilate handed him over to them to be crucified. So the soldiers took charge of Jesus. Carrying his own cross, he went out to the place of the skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. Here they crucified him, and with him two others, one on each side and Jesus in the middle. Pilate had a notice prepared and fastened to the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. Many of the Jews read this sign, for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city, and the sign was written in Aramaic, Latin, and Greek. The chief priests of the Jews protested to Pilate, Do not write the King of the Jews, but that this man claimed to be the King of the Jews. Pilate answered, What I have written, I have written. When the soldiers crucified Jesus, they took his clothes, dividing them into four shares, one for each of them, with the undergarment remaining. This garment was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. Let's not tear it, they said to one another. Let's decide by lot who will get it. This happened that the scripture might be fulfilled, which said, They divided my garments among them and cast lots for my clothing. So this is what the soldiers did. Near the cross of Jesus stood his mother, his mother's sister, Mary the wife of Clopas and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother there and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, Dear woman, here is your son. And to the disciple, here is your mother. From that time on, this disciple took her into his home. The second reading is on page 554. It's taken from Psalm 22, beginning to read at verse 1. For the director of music to the tune of the Doe of the Morning, the Psalm of David. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me, so far from the words of my groaning? Oh my God, I cry out by day, but you do not answer, by night, and am not silent. Yet you are enthroned as the Holy One. You are the praise of Israel. In you our fathers put their trust. They trusted, and you delivered them, and they cried to you and were saved. In you they trusted and were not disappointed. But I am a worm and not a man, scorned by men and despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They hurl insults, shaking their heads. He trusts in the Lord. Let the Lord rescue him. Let him deliver him, since he delights in him. Yet you brought me out of the womb, You made me trust in you, even at my mother's breast. 
From birth I was cast upon you. From my mother's womb you have been my God. Do not be far from me, for trouble is near, and there is no one to help. Many bulls surround me, strong bulls of Bashan encircle me. Roaring lions tearing their prey open their mouths wide against me. I am poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. My heart has turned to wax, it has melted away within me. My strength is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue sticks to the roof of my mouth. You lay me in the dust of death. Dogs have surrounded me, a band of evil men has encircled me. They have pierced my hands and my feet. I can count all my bones. People stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them and cast lots for my clothing. Heavenly Father, please help us to be humble before your word. I pray that as we consider these words of yours, that the Lord Jesus would increase in all our minds so that we may truly believe in him and have life in his name. Amen. At last, British summertime is here. Praise the Lord, you say. And uh, every year I look forward to this day and this time of year. Longer evenings, barbecues, deck chairs, grey skies. Top left is uh, Kendry, of course. No, it isn't. Um, For some, summer could not have come too soon. Unless you've only just come out of winter hibernation, you can't have missed that the southwest of England and the Thames Valley have recently experienced some serious flooding. There it is. Now, of course, it was serious, and it still is, for the occupants of the 1,000 homes that were flooded. But given the media coverage, you could be forgiven for thinking that the UK had experienced a major national emergency. No one died, no one was injured. And those floods, frankly, were like a puddle in the street compared to the floods experienced in places like Bangladesh. But politicians of every colour donned their green wellies and swarmed off to the affected areas. They wanted to show just how much they care. And the Prime Minister took personal charge of the situation. Now, you can't help but wonder if there was something of a loss of perspective. I find it hard to believe that the situation warranted the Prime Minister postponing his long-planned trip to the Middle East, which he has since been on. But you see, he couldn't afford to appear unconcerned. He couldn't afford to be seen not taking action. One commentator said this, one of the reasons why politicians find it so hard to prioritise and make long-term strategic decisions that will benefit the country as a whole is because they are forced to worship at the idol of pleasing the public, responding or at least appearing to respond to the clamour of public opinion. It's a very similar situation in the Church of England. Our bishops are rushing to do things which God's word says are wrong, but they are feeling the weight of public opinion upon them, driven by our liberal media and culture. They're under pressure, aren't they, from Westminster in relation to one of the uh, most prominent issues at the moment 
I keep hearing senior clergy telling us that England expects, or this is what the country is asking the Church of England to do. You see, politicians and leaders seem easily manipulated by the media and by the public opinion that is whipped up by it. They reveal their weakness as they are manipulated into making strange and often bad decisions for fear of losing popularity. But it's nothing new. When we are told, in verse 16, finally, Pilate handed him over to be crucified, it's on the back of immense public pressure. And it's the result of personal weakness. In the moments immediately uh, preceding this handing of Jesus over, John has recorded three times uh, Pilate declaring Jesus to be innocent. Chapter 18, verse 38. Pilate says, I find no basis for the charge. Chapter 9, verse 4. I'm bringing him out to you to let you know that I find no basis for a charge against him. Chapter 19, verse 6, the end of verse 6. As for me, I find no basis for the charge against him. Like Isaiah's emphatic description of God, holy, 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 well, we have Pilate's assertion about Jesus. Innocent, innocent, innocent. So when we read, finally, Pilate handed him over to be crucified, John wants us to know and remember that the him is the clearly and completely innocent Lord Jesus. John then tells us that he was forced, as was the way, verse 17, to carry his own cross, the cross beam to which his wrists would be nailed, and went out to the place of the skull, Golgotha. And there, verse 18, they crucified him with two others, one on each side, and Jesus in the middle. Well, notice with me, if you will, three things from these verses that help us to see that behind the crucifixion of our Lord Jesus was not just the weakness of human leaders and the manipulation of a wicked crowd, but also the sovereign goodness and purpose of the living God. And may I say that the first point is the longest. So when I get to the end of it in about 45 minutes' time give or take half an hour. Don't think that we're only a third of the way through. We're not. We're well over halfway by then. So first, it's coming up on the screen. At the cross, God's innocent king died for all. At the cross, it is coming up. There we go. At the cross, God's innocent king died for all. Verse 19. Pilate had a notice prepared and fastened to the cross. It read... Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. This was almost certainly Pilate's act of revenge. He knew it would wind the Jews up, and uh, they had manipulated him so well, so he thought he'd have a bit of revenge. And indeed, it did wind them up. They took the bait very nicely indeed, as you can see in verse 21. The chief priests of the Jews protested to Pilate, do not write the King of the Jews, but that this man claimed to be the King of the Jews. But Pilate responded, verse 22, what I have written, I have written. Now, don't be fooled by that. He's not motivated by a personal conviction about Jesus' identity. And we're not suddenly seeing a newfound strength of character which prompts him to hold fast to his beliefs. That's not what's going on. 
This statement is motivated by anger at the way he has been played by the Jews and out of a desire for a little bit of token revenge. But in the sovereignty of God, who is even able to use man's wickedness for his good purpose, Pilate declares the truth, not realising how true his words were. It's just like Caiaphas, the high priest, isn't it, who in chapter 11 sinfully declared, it is better for you that one man die for the nation than for the whole nation to perish. He didn't appreciate how true his words were, how God was using him to say things that he himself had not begun to understand. And so it is with Pilate here. God used him, used his sinfully motivated words to declare the truth of Jesus' kingship to all in three languages, Aramaic, Latin and Greek. It was there for all to see and for all to read. But does John really want us to understand that Jesus was God's uh, king dying for all? Is that John's purpose? Or am I just reading something into a sign that was put up? Well, no, I'm not reading into it. John most certainly does want us to understand that Jesus was God's innocent king dying for all. In chapter 12, he has recorded Jesus being welcomed to Jerusalem. The people lined the streets, didn't they, and gave Jesus the red carpet treatment. And they shouted, blessed is the king of Israel. And they quoted Zechariah 9. See, your king is coming, seated on a donkey's colt. But a few verses later, the mood has changed. Jesus knew that his hour had come and it was time for him to die. And in chapter 12, verse 32, he says, But I, this is the one who has just been welcomed as king, but I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all men to myself. John adds in the next verse, he said this to show the kind of death he was going to die. So when we get to chapter 19, we are to know that this is God's promised and innocent king dying for all. To draw all men and women and children to himself. Looks like a meaningless waste of life, doesn't it? But it wasn't. It was God's innocent king dying for all. To draw all. All people from every tribe and tongue and nation to himself, whoever will believe in him. Just notice from uh, chapter 19, verse 5, one other thing that Pilate said. Chapter 19, verse 5. He brought Jesus out wearing a mock crown, a crown of thorns, and Pilate said to them, Here is the man. Here is the man. Perhaps he was mocking Jesus. Perhaps he was saying, just look at him. How can this pathetic figure be a rebel or a king or a threat? But unwittingly, Pilate may never have spoken truer words. The Bible begins, doesn't it, with God creating Adam, literally man. He created him in his own image to rule over the world under his supreme rule. That is the purpose of the man, to rule the world under God. But men, mankind, have made a mess of it. We have not behaved, have we, like creatures made in God's image. We've not ruled under God's supreme rule. We have each one chosen our own way, seen in our messed up lives and our messed up world. And Genesis chapter 3 shows us that the just penalty is death 
cut off from God and from all the good things he has made, otherwise known as hell. But here in John 19 is the man. Here is the one perfectly in God's image who rules the world. Just read the rest of John to see his absolute rule over nature and over sickness and over death. He is the man, the perfect man, who ruled, who was king. And his crowning glory, which shows him to be king, was this, the cross. Listen to uh, Hebrews chapter 2, verse 9. I'm going to put it up on the screen for you. The writer of the Hebrew says this, but we see Jesus who was made a little lower than the angels, now crowned with glory and honour. Why? Because he suffered death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. See, the cross is about the perfect man, God's innocent king, being crowned by tasting death for everyone, for all. We deserve to die. We have turned our backs on God and on life. We have chosen the way of Satan and sin and death. We deserve hell. But on the cross, God's innocent king died for all in our place so that we may be free. This is the Lamb of God from John chapter 1 who takes away the sin of the world. If he was innocent, and he was, then he wasn't being crucified for his own sin. The Bible says that he was in fact dying for the sin of others, even us. He died for all, and that means he died for you. Do you believe that? Have you come to believe it for yourself personally and deeply? Maybe you're here following the Passion for Life events that took place recently. Well, the cross is at the heart of the Christian faith. People sadly think in this season of Lent that the Christian faith is to do with what you do for God. Perhaps giving up caffeine or chocolate or crisps or kebabs or whatever it is. Well, that's how other faiths work, isn't it? Earn favour with God by what you do for him. But the Christian faith is gloriously different. It is about what God, through his son, Jesus Christ, has done for you. So that you may be free and forgiven and have life, eternal life. Not death and hell. This Easter time would be a great time to understand the cross and to come to believe in Jesus and to receive what is on offer. God's innocent king died for all, for all who will believe in him. For those of us who believe in Jesus already, let us be bowled over again by the wonder of the cross and the innocent king who died on it for us. Ponder it. Don't allow familiarity to let you take it for granted. It is incredible. It is life-changing. It is grace beyond measure. And because God's innocent king died for all, we must let all know of this grace. We must be indiscriminate in our evangelism. No one, absolutely no one, is too hard or too cool or too bad or too long in the tooth or too religious or too irreligious. God's innocent king died for all. Do you believe it? Well, then share it with all.
One possible bad thing resulting from passion for life would be if we thought to ourselves, well, that's evangelism done for a while. We can put it on the back burner now till maybe Christmas. That would be one possible bad thing resulting from passion for life. One lasting good thing resulting from passion for life. I'm sure there'll be many lasting good things from passion for life. But another one would be if we all understood that events like passion for life are a helpful focus and a useful reminder of what we should be doing all year round. A helpful focus and a useful reminder of what we should be doing all year round. If you hosted an event last week or in the last couple of weeks, well, you know it works, don't you? If it went badly, you now know what to do differently next time. So why not host another event next month? Maybe for some different people or in a couple of months' time for the same people. Get the same speaker back, unless they were no good, in which case, get someone else. At the cross, God's innocent king died for all. Let's believe it, let's delight in it afresh, and let's share it. Secondly, tonight. At the cross, God's eternal Bible plan is fulfilled. At the cross, God's eternal Bible plan is fulfilled. We should by now be persuaded that the cross was no disaster. It was God's means of salvation uh, for the world. But if you're in any doubt, then notice that the events of that grim and glorious day were all planned way, way in advance and unwittingly worked out perfectly. Have a look with me at uh, verses 23 to 25. When the soldiers crucified Jesus, they took his clothes, dividing them into four shares, one for each of them, with the undergarment remaining. This garment was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. Let's not tear it, they said to one another. Let's decide by lot who will get it. This happened that the scripture might be fulfilled, which said, they divided my garments among them and cast lots for my clothing. So this is what the soldiers did. They were Roman soldiers. They would have had no interest whatsoever in the Jewish scripture. They were not trying to fulfill it. They wouldn't have known it. But in the sovereignty of God, they unwittingly fulfilled what had been written a thousand years before. They fulfilled the words of Psalm 22, verse 18, which was read to us earlier. It was all part of the plan. The plan symbolised by Jesus in John chapter 13 when he took off his outer garments in order to wash his disciples' feet. You see, that's what's going on here in John chapter 19. But in the ultimate way, Jesus' garments are removed so that in his death he can serve and wash his disciples clean, even us. And the taking of his clothes was not the only fulfilment of the scriptures. John tells us about more fulfilment in verses 28 to 36, which I'll leave for whoever is on next week. But even here, verse 18 tells us that he was crucified with two others, one on each side and Jesus in the middle. It should cause us to think, shouldn't it, of uh, Isaiah 53. He poured out his life unto death and was numbered with the transgressors. 
for he bore the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. It was always part of the plan that God's saviour would be numbered with the transgressors, counted as guilty, just just like they were. And that is exactly what happened on the cross at Golgotha. We should be assured over and over and over again that the Christian faith is not based on a mere, though very serious and random miscarriage of justice. Far from it. Our faith is based on the set and published eternal plan of God, fulfilled in minute detail and in history for all to see. At the cross, Jesus, uh, at the cross, God's innocent king died for all. At the cross, God's eternal Bible plan is fulfilled. And finally, at the cross, God's new family is formed. At the cross, God's new family is formed. Our last three verses tell us about some of the eyewitnesses who actually saw Jesus on the cross, including John himself, the disciple whom Jesus loved. Even as he hung on that Roman cross, Jesus thought of and made provision for his mother. He was looking after her. We see here that Mary was someone who was vulnerable, someone who needed to be cared for and who needed protection, who needed to be taken into John's home. Clearly, Mary was never meant to be thought of as divine or as a mediator between God and men or to be prayed to or worshipped or any of the other silly things that people try to do with regard to Mary. You might think it's silly of me to mention it here in uh, uh, Christchurch Fullwood, where you know that already. But heretical Roman thinking and doctrine is rife within, uh, even within our own Anglican Diocese of Sheffield. But the thing I love about these verses is how we see God's new family being formed at the foot of the cross. Verse 26. When Jesus saw his mother there, And the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, Dear woman, here is your son. And to the disciple, here is your mother. From that time on, this disciple took her into his home. John began his gospel back in chapter 1 by telling us, Yet to all who believed in him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Believing in Jesus is to do with believing in him as your Lord and Saviour, trusting that his death on the cross deals with your sin. And as you do that, you are wonderfully adopted into God's family, a child of God. In Kendry, we've recently been working through Paul's first letter to Timothy. In 1 Timothy chapter 5, Verses 1 and 2, Paul writes, Do not rebuke an older man harshly, but exhort him as if he was your father. Treat younger men as brothers, older women as mothers. That's what John was to do, wasn't it, with Mary. And younger women as sisters with absolute purity. You see, when you come to Jesus and the cross for the forgiveness of your sins, you join a new family, God's family. Because of the cross... We are brought together in a deep and profound way. We are family. The fact that we can be in God's family and be brothers and sisters together is having a huge impact in Kendry 
mainly because relationships are so poor there, even within biological families. One man in his early 30s became a Christian recently. He was brought up in the care system and was terribly and wickedly abused in it. He is a drug addict still today and a paranoid schizophrenic. I have seen him weep twice at the joyful knowledge that he is part of God's family now and that he has some brothers and sisters. Through them he has experienced love and care which you might think is basic but which he has never in 30 years experienced. He looks like a hard man and he has had to harden himself to so many things but talk of being in God's family moves him to tears. He's twice apologised to me for being emotional, but explained to me that he has never been in a family before, but now he is. At the cross, God's innocent king died for all. At the cross, God's eternal Bible plan is fulfilled. And at the cross, because of the cross, God's new family is formed. Will you pray with me now? Loving and gracious Heavenly Father, we praise you tonight for your eternal Bible plan that you have worked out in history in order to save a people for yourself. And we praise you especially for the Lord Jesus, your innocent Son and your anointed King. Thank you for all that he has done and won for us. Thank you that through faith in him we may come into your family as children of God and have one another as brothers and sisters. We rejoice in that tonight and we pray this Easter that familiarity with the cross will not dull our minds to the wonder of it. And we pray finally that during this Easter time many people we know and others in our communities will come to know and love and trust King Jesus for themselves. And we ask all these things in his name and for your glory. Amen.